All right. Great to talk to you, Theo. Um, happy to be here and talking to you again on Buddhist Geeks. It's been a while. It's been a long time and it's so good to be back. Yeah. I think the last time you were on the show was probably at the Buddhist Geeks conference when you were given a talk on your, on your uh, connected to your new book, Convergence. Yes. Does that sound right? Yeah. Maybe 2012 or so. Yeah. It was a while, it was a while back. Yeah. 2014. That's right. Um, so you've been up to a lot of things in the, in the last several years. And of course, one of the most notable things that's changed and I wanted to talk to you about is the change in our political environment over the last six years. Wow. It's been profound. And I think that the change actually began before Trump when the world order broke in what I call the summer of hate in 2014. Um, Putin had just taken the Crimea, war had broken out in the eastern Ukraine. Um, then something shifted when ISIS took Mosul in Iraq and everybody began to take note of ISIS and how extreme and fanatical they were. And then shortly thereafter, a few weeks after that, um, Israel began its assault on Gaza. Mm. And then ISIS shows up again later in the summer, committing genocide against the Yazidis um, on the border of Iraq and Syria and Turkey. Um, and I was in the middle of all of that and reporting on it firsthand and actually writing about collective trauma. And I think the world order broke at that time. Um, David Kilcullen, the, um, he's a military strategist, um, called it blood year. And it was the year that counterterrorism broke, but I think it was much deeper than that. And I think it opened up something in the collective unconscious of humanity and mainly ISIS, but Assad was committing genocide against Syrians all this while, br absolutely brutal, tens of thousands of people killed in prison, um, tortured yeah. to death in prison. I think something broke and we began to see things in a much more frightening way. Then you had the refugee crisis in 2015, where Europe began closing its borders and shifting to an extreme form of right-wing populism, which I think morphed into fascism. Um, you had the, I've been in the UK a large part of this time, and you had um, the UK decides to leave the European Union in a right. racist campaign. And all of that was a precursor to Trump. And I think Trump, Trump's election fully put an end to an era of what Americans don't usually think of as peace and prosperity and um, global openness, because we tend to think in terms of the Iraq war. Um, but what in many, much research would suggest was the most peaceful era in human history, um, starting in 1989, maybe in the mid nineties after that transition shifted. So we've all been experiencing mm. Uh, changes at a global level that we're experiencing in our national systems, um, and, and particularly in the United States, we feel it very strongly, but also in other countries. Um, we, we haven't yet ad adapted. We don't know what this new era is, and hopefully the new era won't be characterized by a wor world full of right-wing nationalists and fascists. Um, hopefully it's a transitional period, but we don't know yet. 
Mm. And, and, that, and that really connects with, um, you know, your recent writing, um, The Fascism This Time is the book that just came out, The Global Future of Democracy. Um, and that's a part of what I wanted to, to chat with you about, because I've been really digging your writings on Facebook for the last few years, where you've been sharing excerpts and, and, and just kind of writing, writing this stuff kind of in real time. And you know, by way of introduction, I think people can probably already tell that you're a quite erudite uh, dude and know, know, know some history. And, and, and that's kind of how I, you know, how I know you as well. You know, I, I, when I think of you, Theo, I think of the Trident Bookshop in Boulder, Colorado, of course. And I think about all the times that I sort of would just kind of stop in uh, when we were both living in Colorado. And I'd see you, you know, back in the back corner uh, either with a book or magazine open reading or with your computer on, you know, typing. <laughs> and it was like that for years. Like how many, you probably spent what, 10 years sitting in the I, back corner, just I, reading and <laughs> typing. I did 10 years reading and I was writing a little, but <clears throat> I had a commitment, 10 years of study and then start writing, then start publishing books. And that started in 2014 blood year or, or the summer of hate. That's when you started writing. That was when I started writing seriously. I was, I was, I'd already actually gotten far underway in a couple of books, but um, yeah, I want a plaque on the wall. I, I hear that John, John Paul Sartre has one in his cafe and um, where he used to sit all the time in uh, Paris. <laughs> well, you should definitely have a plaque on the wall of Trident. I, I, I would, I would get behind that. Um, and, and when you say you were reading, I mean, like you were reading like pretty much all day, weren't you? I mean, you yeah, were, yeah. you were, you were taking in 50 hours a week. So I, I wanted to do the equivalent yes. of two PhDs before I actually got a PhD, which is what I'm doing now. <laughs> okay. So, 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 you know, this is, you know, this is your background. You're, you're one of those weird ass people who has been, has been interested in to, and able to dedicate themselves to just consuming a vast amount of, of information, yeah. knowledge, and working on, I guess, understanding it, synthesizing it. And then now since 2014, kind of sharing some of your own perspectives and analysis on what's happening. Yes, but it's good to remember that the backdrop to all of that was years of meditation, you know, 30-year, not always a solid meditation practice, um, more in the early stages, um, but a couple of years of retreat time altogether. Um, and so there was a sense that if I accumulate all of this information, my mind's going to process it, and I'm going to start to see patterns, and I'll be able to see things quicker than others, more insight into what's, what's going on. Not sure if that actually happens. Maybe I just know what's going on and I'm getting things right, but I think it's allowed me to predict some things that other people missed. So you've got this sort of background also as a, as a very committed meditator, mostly in the Goenka tradition, from what I recall, though, I'm sure that's, I'm sure you've opened it up to other things as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I'm just going to mention this. You were, you were one of the first guests on Buddhist Geeks when we talked about entrepreneurs in the meditation factory. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. That was a wonderful conversation. I think it was 2007. Yeah. So way back in the day, you're in, in original Buddhist Geeks. And, and you know, going even further back, you know, our, our shared history, um, I think I met you in probably 2004. So this was yeah. probably the beginning of your kind of hyper uh, reading and learning phase. 
And how I kind of knew you was one through our mutual connections to the community of people connected to Ken Wilbur and the Integral Institute. Yes. And also I knew you as the facilitator of a weekly conversation and, um, and what you called philosophy gang, uh, at the Trident bookshop. <laughs> and that was something that I went to, I think for a couple years regularly and really, really, it, it, it was transformational for me to, to practice philosophy, not just to like read philosophical texts, but to actually sit with people who have done a lot of reading and, and considering and have these open conversations about different topics. Um, and, and that's kind of, I, I guess where I wanted to start was sort of exploring this connection between philosophy and, you know, how we make sense of the world, how we think about things, how we make meaning, all of those things, how we, how we consider our, our behavior, our ethics, <laughs> our actions. I know your, your study, uh, your, your current PhD is on, I thought cosmopolitan ethics. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, how do you connect those two domains? I mean, political philosophy obviously goes way back. Um, and actually one of the first times I, I remember running into you was at the, on the Boulder, um, uh, the Pearl Street Mall. Yes. Yeah. I, I remember seeing you in the Pearl Street Mall reading some sort of political uh, philosophy text. Yeah. And, you know, how do, how do you connect this experience of this sort of 10 years of meditating, philosophizing, reading, learning, talking to people about philosophy, then making the shift, you know, into really more of an active, engaged um, political... I mean, I know you've always had a background in activism, but it seems like there was a t sort of turn from thinking about things to, I don't know, how would you describe that turn? And what what is the relationship between philosophy and politics? And it's a big question. Oh, yeah. But for, for you, you know, what, what is the relationship yeah. between those two domains of, of, uh, of thought? I just want to go, I just want to go back to where it all began with the ancient Greeks and you had no differentiation among academic disciplines. It was all philosophy of a sort. And then Aristotle began doing these highly focused studies with his students um, into politics, into biology, and he broke down the disciplines of philosophy into ethics and metaphysics. And um, gradually, over the centuries since that time, philosophies usually tended to pioneer a new field. Um, it will start out, the new field will start out with deep speculation, um, often in a highly logical form, in a theoretical form, and then the research will get underway and eventually it will become a new discipline. So now philosophy is always going to have that sort of sense that it's, it's off in the background theorizing it's, it's got a deeper view. It's, it's going to be working with logic and theory. Hopefully it will have some information to go on. Um, and so political philosophy tends to take a while to translate back into the world in the sense that you're not going to get, um, you're not going to get immediate action when you write political philosophy. You're, it's going to be contemplated. It's going to be filtered. People are going to experiment with your political philosophy. But you've also got another way of doing philosophy, which is more social criticism. Um, you take something that's going on in the world and you look at it deeply from a lot of different viewpoints. Um, 
So you can, you can dissect it using some theoretical tools. You can dissect it using logic. Um, you can use moral principles um, to analyze what's going on. And in that sense, philosophy um, can play a really important role in engaging um, current political events. You have another way of doing philosophy, which um, people like uh, Martha Nussbaum, Peter Singer, Kwame Anthony Apaya um, will do this sort of thing where they'll take a lot of their deeper studies from um, their ethical and political philosophy and they'll write pieces in the New York Times or um, or in the Atlantic. Um, they'll have they'll have a, a deeper view on some current affairs issue, and oftentimes it's not that difficult to summarize the deeper view. So it, it's an informed perspective. It's a philosophically informed perspective. Mm. I'll, I'll often be doing a lot of that. I'll often be doing the the social criticism, um, but then there's just Another way, which is having this background of perspective and throwing yourself into the maelstrom of current events and knowing that you can always go back to these deeper abstract concepts in the same way that a meditator goes back to their breath. Right. Um, it's, it's this, it's this, um, rope to sanity you know when when you go inside the labyrinth you you take a string with you um so that you can follow it back out um it sort of becomes like that so there's a sanity that you can get there's a perspective there's also something about logic that allows you to um, define things accurately so you can look at something like i i look in say in 2016 i looked at right-wing populism what is right-wing populism it doesn't really show up in political philosophy there's not a big a long history of people talking about right-wing populism what's going on we've we've had some good definitions of it but actually right-wing populism looks a lot like fascism it's kind of fascism light that the term starts to appear i i don't i don't I don't know exactly when it appears, but it, 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 I see it kind of in the, in the mid 2000s, and then particularly as a 2010 startup. So you start to look at these things that people have, they're often euphemisms, they're often, um, they're often, uh, um, they're often just naming events as they're happening. And if you've got this background, this, theoretical background. It could be political theory. It could be philosophy. You can often name things because you see them a lot clearer than others and you mm. see where they're going a lot faster. Gotcha. So, so this sort of, this space of perspectives, this ability to step back, uh, the rope to sanity. I like that phrase, um, gives you a kind of vantage point. It sounds like from which to understand current events, in a, in a potentially deeper, clear way. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Um, well, <laughs> good. Um, let, let's, let's try to understand what the hell is going on here, man. <laughs> please, please. Yeah, hard part. Um, now I, I just wanted to share this one quote uh, from the introduction to your book, um, and, and ask you to unpack this a little bit, yeah. um, for us. You say Trump is to Hitler as Groucho was to Carl. 
And I love the old analogies. I'm bummed they took them off the SATs. But, uh, you know, could you break that analogy down? Like, what does that mean? And why is that significant? Well, I mean, there's a sense. Okay, so if you look at, I'm sure everybody in, in your audience, everyone listening right now is going to know a bunch of different leaders from the major Western states. I'll say the, the UK, France, Germany, the United States, um, the big ones. And you go back over the last 150 years and you say, what leader can you think of that was more like Hitler, that, that, was, that was the most like Hitler? I've done this so many times and I've put it out to people and all I come up with is Trump. I mean, throw Italy in the mix and okay, Mussolini's in competition with Trump, but I actually think Trump's more similar. But, but what's the difference? Okay, so... Hitler was actually considered a bit of a clown through the 20s. He had terrible work habits. Um, he'd often get up at 11 a.m., not to insult people who get up at 11 a.m., but if you're the head of a major state and you're getting up at 11 a.m., that's problematic. But he wouldn't even get to work when he'd get up. He'd spend about an hour and a half often studying reports of himself, very much like Trump. Um, but Trump looks so much more clownish than most people ever conceive of Hitler as being. Why is that? Well, one reason is social media and the 24-hour news cycle allows us to see straight through him. We uncover everything. And reporters know how to get into the minds of the people sitting in on his top administrative meetings. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. They're not just finding out what goes on inside the meetings, at times, they're often finding out what was going inside the people's heads as other people spoke in the meeting. Now, when you get that level of exposure, the clownishness begins to be become much more apparent. Um, but there's also something about, well, fascism in the early 20th century, it was new, it was young, it was vigorous, it was, it was filled with young people. They thought they could change the future, they could grab hold of it. They were, they were, operating usually in new democracies and in many ways, new nations. Germany at the time in 1920 or so, was, it was half a century old, as was Italy. Um, so these are, these are barely formed. They're, they're not stable. And they thought they could seize the day and create something new. Um, now, they still had the same nihilism, the same... Um, unruly habits, the same um, disrespect for the law and institutions. Um, but there was still a sense that it was all young and they could do something special. Now you move forward in time to Trump and Modi and Bolsonaro and Duterte in the Philippines, and everything is exposing them as looking like clowns. And then they're mocked um, on Twitter constantly. And they all have fragile egos. That's a part of what being such a sort of preening, boastful um, egomaniac is about. I mean, you have a fragile ego. That's why you're doing all these things. And so we're constantly exposing their fragile egos. Um, so there's a sense in which all of their efforts now to bolster themselves, to make themselves look great, to make themselves look like they've <clears throat> got an iron will, it all just looks like. Um, it all just looks like a comedy. And so, you know, I start the book off with um, Marx once 
um, noted that all all great historical events um, repeat themselves. The first time is tragedy, and the second is farce. And what we're seeing now is a farce, but we should take it seriously um, mm. because it's the same nihilistic drives that lie behind it. I like that you're saying that because it, you know, if, if, uh, on a personal level, you know, I can reflect back to the, you know, t- 2016 and and the wake of that uh, election and the results, and I can sort of see how there's a big part of me that just does not did not want to accept the possibility that this could be really, really, really bad. Like I knew it was bad. <laughs> I knew it was bad. Um, and I think it, you know, in part was your, your writing, uh, reading your writing, and then also just the reality of the last several years and seeing how it's gotten just worse and worse and worse. Um, that's kind of led me to realize like this comparison of like calling someone a fascist, which is real. There's a history of that. You know, like I know Obama was called a fascist all the time (laughs) when he was in his presidency, but you know, calling someone a fascist and then actually being fascist, that's different. And it seems to me, you know, at this time, especially moving in toward, toward this, um, this U S election time that like, this is pretty effing serious. Yeah. And I've really come around to that, you know, to the, that, to that realization. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm kind of curious about the psych, the mass collective psychology of all of this. Cause you've been on Facebook talking to people, trying to be very reasonable and kind, you know, and, and get <laughs> firm. I've seen you and, and it's, it's crazy how many people really still to this day, um, just don't understand or perceive there being a threat to our democracy or to, potentially uh, a huge swaths of people um, and, and already, I mean, the, that, that discounts the, da- the damage that's already been done really to say it that way, but that, that, that there's even more potential danger for um, especially those among us who don't have the, the, pr- the privilege and the resources to, to insulate themselves from, from this administration. Absolutely. So let's, let's dig into, first of all, why, why call Trump a fascist? as opposed to a right-wing populist. Um, Why focus on the extreme dangers of his presidency instead of the the clownish buffoonery, um, his um, administrative incompetence, um, his failure to even hold together a functioning administration. So there's a lot of different ways of defining fascism, which makes it difficult to pin it down. Part of the reason it's hard to define it is because there weren't all that many fully developed fascist states. Some scholars of fascism will say it was only Nazi Germany was fully developed as a fascist state. Even Mussolini's Italy, um, which pioneered fascism, never really came into its own. It was always held back by the church and crown and social norms. Um, And then you have all of these tiny fascist movements that have appeared and you have fascist writers, but those are all quite different than what fascism looks like when it's in a state. Um, and fascism's different in its early stages from in, in, in its developed stage because fascists tend to lie a lot. Um, they're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in really. They're not interested in serving the people, um, in making things better. It's largely an effort to create an alternative system of valuation. Um, So you find yourself unable to fit into the world. 
you're just not competent to it. You can't cope socially. It's maybe a complex society. It's maybe a democratic society and you don't know how to work democratically. Uh, maybe it's a multicultural society and you just don't have the social skills to function well. So you find a way to take pot shots from the outside um, and to bolster your own ego. Um, but fascism tries to just overturn the whole order. And it does this by banding behind some kind of strong man and a cult of personality. And the strong man enforces his um, perspective through propaganda and through punishing any dissenter in his ranks. We've seen Trump do this over and over again. He makes up his own reality, um, attacks anyone who challenges it, but particularly people within his own ranks, including his own administration. Um, he demands obedience and devotion. Now, people then see in him what they want to be, as happens in many cults. Um, they see in the fascist leader who they aspire to be. So why would you have these clownish idiots um, that, that, are, that can't function well, and they make themselves out to be the greatest, most extraordinary people alive. Um, Trump is probably the least virtuous person anyone listening to this can think of at this time. Like He, he, he lacks discipline. He lacks um, the ability to speak clearly. He's not kind to people. He's not, he's not even powerful. He lacks power um, on a personal level. So you band behind someone like this, and then you aim to take over the social order. Um, ultimately, what you're wanting to do is you're wanting to tear down everything else. And that's that nihilistic urge. You want to attack it. So fascism is an attack on existing social norms, existing institutions. Of course, democratic institutions, because they're the most frightening and the most difficult to adapt to. They're constantly changing. There's no clear sense of where the order lies. They're contentious. Um, and they tend to favor the reasonable, the articulate, and the cooperative, which the fascists aren't. So they attack democratic institutions. But then they also attack minorities who are a threat and the weak right. who are a threat. And this is where you get into the genocidal impulses behind fascism. So once you identify Trump as a fascist, you start to look for other things that fascists have done. So when you see the attacks on the minorities, you ask, could it get genocidal? Because one of the key marks of, of fascism is that it will get genocidal if given time. Um, now, where could it get genocidal? So you immediately go to, well, the attacks are on the people crossing the border. Is he going to put them in concentration camps? We have to get them out of the country somehow if we apprehend massive numbers of them. We, we're going to have to put them somewhere as we're processing their court cases. Um, we're going to have millions of people, but these are Republicans. They're not going to want to fund these prisons. They're not going to put the resources into it. They're not going to be rational about how they provision them. They're going to turn into concentration camps that are densely packed, and they're going to get very scary very fast. That was easily predictable if you just started with the premise that this is this is a fascist and they're going to keep pushing these attacks. And so what we got was we got thousands of children separated from their parents, 
thrown into densely packed cells where they weren't allowed to shower for many days on end, where they weren't given shampoo, weren't given toothpaste, weren't given bedding, um, were forced to sleep in tinfoil. When the flu started going around, they weren't given flu shots. Um, many of them were sexually abusing one another. There was some sexual abuse from the guards. Um, all of this was predictable. Then you look at, we had a war that we were supporting the Saudis waging in Yemen. Mm. That war involved um, a blockade of its ports, which was starting to starve some of the population. Obama was very uncomfortable with it. He was challenging the Saudis every step of the way, but he didn't want to get back involved back in the Middle East. So what's going to happen when Trump takes over? The starvation is going to intensify. We could have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people dying. Um, will this be a genocide? It will look very genocidal. History will look back on it as such. Now, as it happens, a couple of years ago, we lost track of how many had died in Yemen as a result of the blockade when 18 million people were said to be on the brink of starvation and um, 80,000 people had been killed from it or died from it, mostly children. Um, but those were early numbers. The last two years have been far worse. My guess is we're going to wind up, if Trump's out of office in January and Biden quickly changes the policies, we could have hundreds of thousands. So you see what's on the horizon by simply naming it accurately. And to name it accurately, you have to understand what's driving the movement. Mm. And then, and then, fast forward to now. For the last five months, we've been in lock, you know, uh, at least in the United States, in kind of lockdown mode. And the you know, hundred and I think seventy thousand Americans have died of COVID. Yeah, most recent numbers I saw. So, you know, absolutely. <laughs> then there's this situation. Fascism is going to end in destruction for a couple of key reasons. One is it's driven by nihilism. Um, it's, it's an assault on so many different things. The second thing is that what sustains it is its insulation from reality. So it's not just going to be irrational in its approach to things. It's going to be completely divorced from reality. And as time goes on, it will become more and more divorced. Um, so you had two of these things coming together, I believe, in Trump's response to the coronavirus early on. One, he was in complete denial. He was completely insane in his approach to it. He was going back and forth between lying and saying he had cures and coming up with weird conspiracy theories. Um, but there was also a hint that he was just perfectly happy seeing the Democrats and liberal states where it was first breaking out die from it. And I don't think that was a coincidence that he was he didn't care much about it at all when it was breaking out in the big cities of liberal states, where it first broke out in big cities everywhere, um, global cities particularly, um, because that was where it came from other countries. Um, yes. So you have these semi-conscious drives to kill off the population, uh, maybe yourself. Should we shouldn't we shouldn't. Uh, we shouldn't dismiss the possibility that many of his supporters might not be happy being alive. Um, actually, one assessment I saw um, said the best indicator of what counties voted for Trump 
was the the ratio of oxycontin to per population. So how how are many um, tablets per um, per person? The higher they were, the more likely they were in that county. The more they were likely to vote for Trump. Um, so basically, you had the um, I mean, you had a bunch of people addicted to prescription drugs um, in these areas because they had so broken down. That was why they were addicted to prescription drugs. But always when you have addiction, you have these self-destructive tendencies going on. Mm. I don't even, and as you said, pain. Yeah. Well, I mean, you start with the pain, but then you're you're dealing with emotional pains and then you're dealing with addiction, oftentimes just compounded pain. Yeah. Compounded pain and the shame and the urge to just harm yourself. Um, so I wouldn't even dismiss the possibility that many of these people just, they don't care. I mean, why else not? Why else be so rebellious about wearing a mask? This, for me, it goes, you know, going back to what you're saying, the very beginning, you know, like where, where did this sort of, um, this begin? And, you know, for me, the election of Trump was also, as I imagine for many people who are, who haven't been uh, doing this sort of uh, study, you know, it was like a big disenchantment in terms of neoliberalism. Yes. Actually, I mean, that, that disenchantment had been happening for many people yeah, yeah. Over, you know, for much before yeah. that, including myself, you know, but, but at the same time, there was a sense of like, oh, wow, this is where our political consensus over the last, you know, ne- the neoliberal, neoconservative consensus has brought us like, this is what it's led to. And thus there must be something that was wrong you know, with these, <laughs> these this approach, these philosophies, these, um, you know, these orientations. And I, I found it interesting, you know, in the last few years, like that intuition of like, okay, what, let me see what, what actually, what were the conditions that gave rise to this societally, um, versus like, okay, Trump is a bad guy and we need to get him out of there. And he's the problem, you know? And, and, and I, I think, you know, it's like both two things can be true at once, of course, <laughs> But but it doesn't seem like, given the current um, state of of intense polarization um, around these topics, especially in the United States, it's like very difficult to hold both of those at once in a public conversation. And I I think you've do, you've done a really good job of that. Uh, also, from what I've seen in this book, but, you know, in the very opening, you 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 mentioned that fascists are able to claim the nation to themselves as the left picks up votes on the multicultural margins because the left has failed to present a compelling vision of what it means to be American. Yes. That's a strong statement. Um, particularly coming from someone who is so, I mean, really writing a a critical, an incredibly critical book, um, to kind of point out, Oh, like the responsibility that may lie on the side, uh, of the left how do you how do you relate to that you know of like people are so polarized upset understandably uh on the left and at the same time to me there's been almost it's almost like a scary lack of self-reflection going on yeah. of like how did we like how did me backing you know 
the charisma of a, of an leader like Obama without really being curious about all of the policies and like the actual impact and the drone strikes and the, you know, and, and, and the immigration policies. And, and it's like, Oh, wait a second. Actually I've, I've sort of been duped, you know, in a way, but by the cult of personality, but, but in this case, you know, a personality I'd much rather be, you know, in the, in the white house. Uh, but still, you know, there's something there. Could you talk a bit about yeah, that? What's, so- so first of all, you're 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 reminding me of um, 2008, November 8th, or whenever it was. The election has happened. Obama's about to win, and we're sitting there with some friends. Yeah, you and I were sitting together that day. Yeah, that's right. And Obama <laughs> gives his speech, and he says, "And we will something like we will hunt down and kill Bin Laden," and. A few of us just kind of looked around and burst out laughing. It was so weird. I was like, why did why did everybody laugh? We never talked about it. Huh. But I think it was so incongruous and no one could imagine that side of him at the time. So, okay, set that aside. Now we've got two lefts that we're talking about here. One yeah. left is the center left which has its neoliberalism, which all define as a kind of market fundamentalism where we think the markets can take care of everything. Um, that's really not so much a center-left thing as mostly the center-right has that kind of neoliberalism in the center. But the center-left will often go along with it. Um, they're much more comfortable with markets taking care of things. They're much more comfortable with privatization. They're much less concerned with building a social safety net, um, with creating economic um, protections. Um, they're usually trying to ameliorate things, make them a little bit better. Um, so that's one version. That's problematic. Do they? Does that group really have a vision for the country? Um, They'll, they'll wave flags when it comes campaign time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll do that. They'll, they'll carry on the traditions. They have a very functional form of, of government. You take out the center-right and the extremes of neoliberalism, where it's, the market's going to take care of everything and they're skeptical of um, human cooperation in general. You take them out and you have something like a – um, you, you have Obamacare, you're trying to shave off some of the hardship of paying off student loans, you're um, trying to reduce the costs of a college education. It's not so bad, it's functional. But is it is it inspiring for what the country can be? I, I'm not so sure about that. Now you go further left um, to progressives and those who are cynical about the whole system, and you start getting an attack on everything we've been and everything we've done. And there's a lot to attack from the beginning, the genocide of Native Americans, the the slave trade, Jim Crow, um, Mm. American imperialism. We have the massive American military. We can go on and on and on about this. And the principal role of the left is to critique what's happening. The left usually um, assaults assaults mainstream politics with criticisms about how it's not good enough. Now, Bernie comes along in 2016, and he organizes something like I had never seen in my life, which is the real possibility of bringing deep and lasting change, starting with the issues that matter most. Um, 
And when Bernie, but when Bernie goes away, the left tends to go back to just sort of attacking the country and all it stands for. And if, if someone says, I love this country, they just get laughed out of the room. Um, now there are compelling visions that we can generate with the values of the left deeply rooted in American history. We can focus on the fact that we were the first, um, the first modern democratic state, um, that democracy has been core to everything within our culture from the start, um, that we've often led many of the progressive changes that have occurred in the world. We've often um, been the leader in creating a more humane state. We've in many ways pioneered the democratization of um, the rest of the world, been completely hypocritical, and we've destroyed some democracies over the, along the way, particularly in the Cold War. Um, but at the end of World War One, at the end of World War Two, when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, um, we gave support to these countries. We, we incentivized it in the favor of democratizing. We um, gently punished dictatorships. We were less likely to trade with them, and we were a major trading partner. So there is a compelling vision out there. Um, of, of who we are. We've also been an incredibly expressive culture. Um, we've, we've pioneered multiple different forms of music and the arts and film. Um, and we've often been known for our friendliness, not so much these days. Um, and even going back before Trump, um, not so much so. Um, but America was always an intriguing place. Now there was a shallowness and a kitsch to it all. And from a Buddhist point of view, our consumerism um, and the, the cravings that it generated was, was off the charts. Um, it was probably like nothing the world had ever seen as well. Um, but there's so little effort on the left to find an inspiring vision of who we are and where we're going that someone who needs the support of a, of a nation, that their identity is not strong enough to stand on their own and the bottoms dropped out of their family and their neighborhoods and local community organizations. And so then they go seeking something in the nation itself, the meaning of citizenship, and it's being assaulted from the left and the right's claiming it. They might be attacking our norms. They might be attacking our democratic institutions. They might hate half the population. They might hate the courts. They might hate most of the media. Um, but somehow they're able to wave an American flag, say, make America great again, while all the while attacking it. And those who want to rest in the comfort and assurance of a national identity flock to them. Ooh, this is so big, man. Um, <laughs> this is so big because I, one, I, I just haven't heard this be, I'm sure it's talked about in some places. I just haven't seen it, seen this be part of the, the, the kind of more mainstream dialogue going on. And from a kind of psychodynamic perspective, um, it's so interesting because I, I'm flashing to the work that I've done with Diane uh, Hamilton, uh, the Zen teacher and me, me, a mediator and a practitioner of this um, practice called Big Mind. And, and, and part of that practice, which is informed by Ken Wilber's integral theory, is the idea that, you know, there, there's some kind of process of development that humans go through and we tends to start, you know, fixated on the self and then it grows to include more like our tribe, our people, you know, ultimately all people, 
ultimately this whole planet and ultimately maybe the whole cosmos itself. Um, but that, that movement, um, it's it's interesting because as Wilbur says, right? It's a it's a transcend and include process. We transcend to some you know to some higher you know to some more inclusive place of uh, of awareness of, of of identity, but we also don't leave behind the egocentrism or the ethnocentrism or the you know the humanism. We we always is part of us. It's not something we can get rid of. So we're simultaneously can be you know thinking big picture like this all all human beings. What's best for humanity? while at the same time not really in touch with our own ethnocentric drives and tribalistic you know impulses and the the, the legitimate human needs around around that and and that's what i've found with myself and the communities i've been part of that we're really have a difficult time owning our own ethnocentrism owning our own tribalism because it seems so like uh yeah know, like i got out of that and I don't want to go back. But for yeah. me, it's been so helpful during this time to actually do the, you know, kind of the work, the reclamation work of going back and being like, wait a second, as a white Southern man, what do I actually notice about my experience? You know, like, could I actually own this part of myself? You know, like, and see what's there and, and, and actually even what's good yeah. in, in, in those ethnocentric identities. We could get, you know, for me growing up in the South, in the rural South, there's a lot of bad shit, you know, that I, yeah. uh, that I could point to and I have, but there's also, you know, this sense of general close knitness of community kindness yeah. to one another, as long as, you know, the other is the same as you. And, there's also a deeper sense of being connected to the natural rhythms of life mm. and to the earth, even to agriculture, to, you know, to working with one's hands and, you know, um, all of these things to me were part of what I do appreciate about coming up in a Southern white culture. Yeah. And it seems to me like we just haven't been able to almost like own our own ethnocentrism enough to be able to be constructive and generative around it. Absolutely. Um, well, well we're, we're all going to have multiple different identities. Um, some of those identities we're going to be born into. Um, we're going to be born into our sex. Um, we're going to be born into the color of our skin and the, our families colors of skin. We're going to be born into a particular um, country, probably with a national identity tied to it and citizenship. Although some of us don't have those states and some of us, um, the sexual identity is less clear. Um, the, there's always ambiguous versions of these, but we're born into something. And we also have a lot of identities that we pick up along the way that we're kind of thrown into by happenstance. Um, we might be thrown into poverty or, or wealth in our lives. We might be, um, we might move early in life to a particular part of the country and adopt its identity. Um, we might discover later in life um, that we actually, a large part of our identity is tied up with our immigrant parents or grandparents. Um, and we're actually playing out a lot of characteristics of that ethnic group that we weren't aware of at first. Um, mm -hmm. So now, 
as we search inside of ourselves, as we look closely at what's going on inside of ourselves, we start to see these patterns and we've got to come to terms with them inside of ourselves. But then the question is, well, what do we owe to those groups that we're a part of? Now, if you're a part of an oppressed minority, if you're brought up black in the South um, and you you want to get away from it, that identity in some ways, because whatever, you don't feel like you you fit whatever you identify as, 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 as what black people do. But at the same time, you've experienced all the same racism, all the same disadvantages, all the same discomforts, the awkwardness. And so now do you experience yourself as having a duty to go back into that identity, to take it on a little, make the most of it, find what's beautiful in it. Um, and also work to work to end the oppression um, of, uh, of people like yourself. Um, we can reject identities and we can reject identities we're born into, but it, it starts to get unhealthy when we rejected too many of these identities. And it's particularly problematic when we reject the identity of the states of which we're citizens, because this is where we can really make a big impact. This is where we can do great good. Um, and by claiming that identity, we make ourselves insiders who have more power. We also begin to turn the nation in a particular direction. And what I'd urge anyone to do is to consciously turn it into a good direction, <laughs> which is what I think the left wants to do. Um, they want to make the country better. And it's a lot easier if you recognize how you're a member of it, how you've got many of the same cultural traits of the people that you don't like, and that many of the good things about you that you didn't associate with your culture actually are cultural traits, um, that our multiculturalism is deeply American, that our, um, our contentiousness across the political divide is deeply American, that our urge to make the society into which we we're born better is deeply American as well. Um, now that shouldn't contradict wider identities. I'm a cosmopolitan, um, for one thing. I'm a philosopher and my identity stands above all identities because I question them all. Um, we, we should still be able to do that, but to recognize that these lesser identities are important and we can do a lot of good by, by grappling with what what's um, meaningful in them. Mm. Mm. This is, um, yeah, it's, it, it feels like a bit like a meditation, you know, kind of contemplating mm. uh, what you're saying because I'm, I, I notice I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in a space of not knowing like, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you think of it, this, this, there's so many identities floating around in each of us. You know, I, yes. man, I'm American. My, my dad's Jewish. A large part of my family identifies with Israel. Um, but actually my grandfather was Iraqi and Arab, but my dad's side of the family grew up in Iran and my mom's family grew up in the Midwest. I'm actually, um, Midwest, Mid East coming together. Yeah, Midwest, Mid East, uh, and my um, my first cousin, five generations removed, is 
Mark Twain, and he lived next door to Jesse James. <laughs> so you got that history wow. as well. And I was brought up in the South, and I'm a philosopher, and I'm, a, I'm an activist, and I'm a meditator, and it goes on and on and on. And then so one way of approaching all of this is to say, uh, none of these identities matter. They're, they're all illusions. They all interpenetrate one another. They're all interpenetrate penetrated by other identities they're uh, all the, uh, the contemplative identity <laughs> right 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 exactly they're constructed in the imagination um they tend to be changing far more rapidly than than we think um so i take refuge in the buddha the dhamma and the sangha uh, that's one mm -hmm. way to go but it, right. it is its own identity but not to say that we have to grasp the widest identity possible now now let's say we're now in the relative world and I'm identified as something and I can use my identity as a citizen of the United States to bring about great change. I can use my identity in support of Palestinian human rights as someone of Jewish heritage, not full Jewish heritage, half Jewish heritage. But I carry in me a lot of the, the cultural traits that Jews have often exhibited. Um, not knowingly, it didn't, it took me until I was 25 to realize it. Um, but so you can do great good. It, it's a, it becomes an opportunity. And also it becomes a way of leading other people out of the worst elements. You, you lead them out of their own labyrinth. Hmm. You know, what you're sharing here around just the, the multiplicity um, of identity, it kind of, for me, it brings up these, these kind of philosophical questions around, you know, individual identity and collective and group identities. And that seems to be so much of where the tension, the cultural tensions are arising now um, around these things. And ah, this again, going back to our, our shared connection with Ken Wilber, you know, what I still appreciate about his philosophy is the way that those two dimensions are both honored, differentiated, and held together. Um, that we simultaneously have, you know, whatever individual identities arising in this moment, you know, I've got the, the identity of a podcaster, the identity of a friend, the identity, you know, it's like, I can see um, uh, all these things. And what, what's really struck me recently has been the way that that identity process is. So the individual identity changes with conditions, changes with what's happening in the collective and also how every individual seems to that, like they're, the way that their identities are weighted, you know, the priority of identities, it's not always the same. Like someone with a certain color skin may not always that be their first identity or they're, they're one of the most important identities. Although it seems like one of the general truths is that people that do share in an oppressed minority identity, those identities do tend to rise closer to the top priority wise because you, know, you can't ignore them. But, but still, you know, not everyone relates to the identity, their collective identities, you know, in the same way. And so we've got this real nuance in terms of how actual, you know, how this is actually playing out and, in, in, you know, on the ground. And then these very kind of, you know, caricatured ideas of, of group identity and collective identity. You're this, you're that, therefore, you know, this, 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 and this must be true. And it's like very heavy handed and kind of nasty, especially on social media. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what, yeah, what do we do with all that? It feels a little like the intense fragmentation 
going on here? Like how, you know, what identities are most important right now? Like, like you said, the American identity could actually be picked up and used for good. Yeah. So, okay. So when you look at this in developmental terms, um, you, you have these core identities, you're born into them at this ethnocentric stage of development and you, you have trouble seeing outside of it. Maybe, maybe you can respect what's going on outside of it, but you, you're not really looking so much. You're immersed in it. Um, and there's, there's a lot of room for bigotry in that phase of development. And, and then you move to a higher stage where you start to individuate your person, personal identity. Um, and oftentimes you're, you're only, you're conscious in a very narrow, rational kind of way. And you might be more into science and you, you, um, might be more interested in building yourself up at at this phase of development. Um, and and then you move on to a, a place where you begin to, see through the limitations you 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 your process of individuation becomes much more about discovering you you discover things in your unconscious you discover how your body is related to your mind how your culture is related to another culture how um culture itself is tied to nature and how nature is always influencing you and it becomes vastly more complex and globalized but but it's difficult to differentiate things in this phase of development. And so we can get stuck. Yes. This is what in integral they would call green. Um, it's multicultural, it's pluralistic, but it's so much more than that. Um, and so you want to get out, out of that into a place where you can make sense of it all. You can bring some differentiation, um, some clarity about what really matters and to, and to move to move a little more swiftly to what matters. Yes. As you're pointing out, all of those lower stages are in us all the time. We've got those submerged identities that we're born into, but we also have those tendencies to want to retreat back into something. We've got responsibilities to them. Maybe it's just simply responsibilities we feel towards family or um, Mm -hmm. institutions we've been a part of that, that helped us out. I have a I have a great debt, literal debt, that I feel myself owing to um, the Goenka Vipassana community of several thousand dollars after having um, not paid much in donations uh, um, in my early courses through my 20s that I, I'd like to give back at some point in time, even though I'm no longer associated with that community and haven't been for some time. <clears throat> so we have these debts we owe. And um, one of the debts we owe is to go back in the marketplace after having been on the mountain and show them what we've learned. And one of the things we've learned is how to get out of the worst elements of those identities, um, how to transform those identities, how to make them something better. We've learned what's meaningful in them and what's nonsense. Um, And we we might have some wisdom about um, how to get out of the worst traps that are tied to those identities, the, the worst traps of white privilege, say. Um, now, we're not going to just get that from sitting on the cushion. We're not just going to get it through raw intellectual and moral development. We often have to think about this stuff a lot. We have to study about it and talk with people. But that actually is a large part of the process of developing that and simply living. And um, so, yes, we've got, we have responsibilities. And when we dissociate ourselves from it, things tend to get weird. If we dissociate ourselves from the identities into which we are been, we've been born, our whiteness, our maleness, our femaleness, our 
um, our blackness or blackness or whiteness or Americanness or our minorityness or, um, or our poverty or our wealth, whatever it might be. Um, we dissociate ourselves because we're all beyond that. Right. And what do, what do we do when we start regressing? Well, we tend to regress into smaller other communities. We'll find a community to regress into, but we won't realize that we're regressing. We won't realize that we've just seized up around our, our leftism in a moment of anxiety. And we're now tribal leftists, not as if the mm-hmm. left is always tribal. The left is, a, is usually quite expansive relative to the rest of the culture, but you can do that and you can do it with, with all sorts of things. Yeah. That's really interesting. And, you know, I've, I've, it's interesting to thinking about the sort of meditative, um, maps in, in a way, uh, you know, coming down off the mountain and having a bunch of, you know, kind of maps of process of, 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 of insight and learning in that context, it seems to me like I, I can't help but a, a view what's happening collectively, you know, from the point of view of those maps as well. And I, it seems so clear to me that we're in a kind of collective disillusionment phase, you know, where this, some old identity is dissolving and we don't have a reference point yet to coalesce around. So it's just totally disorienting. Some people are clinging to the, you know, to the sort of strong man and the the sort of (laughs) neo-fascist identity, make America great again. And other people are, you know, questioning things and becoming tribalist, you know, on on the other side. And it's really, um, and then I think a lot of people, it seems like are really growing a lot during this time and are having breakthroughs and insights and changing how they live and what, you know, some big, some, some big movements forward as well. Do you see that too? It's funny. I actually, I don't in a lot of ways, I I actually identified a couple of years ago that virtually every person I knew seemed to be regressing um, in some way because in order to address what was happening nationally, um, we had to get in the thick of it. And But if we got in the thick of it, it was so stressful that we would, we would clamp up in a, in, a, in a way. There was so much anxiety tied up with it that we tended to regress. We could also dissociate from it, but it was so critical to be engaged at this time that dissociating from it tended to result in regressions of its own kind. Right. Like I'm going to get off social media completely and that'll solve the problem. Exactly. Exactly. But at the same time, if you're looking at things like a lot of us are seeing through our racism in new ways. Wow. I see that. A lot of us are seeing through our sexism in new ways, all the terrible things about Trump. I think we're seeing inside of ourselves in ways that are making us grow. We're learning how to engage in ways that we hadn't. I think that's really important. Um, Part of me wonders if what's actually going on is we're going back and we're, we're, we're regressing in the service of transcendence as the transpersonal psychology language would go around therapy. You go back to your, what happened in your early childhood, you, you work with it, you come to terms with it, and then you are able to transcend where you were at before you went into therapy. Um, maybe we're doing something like that. Um, and from the meditative map perspective, you know, it's like what follows disillusionment if you get through it is 
more of a spacious equanimity begins to arise in the, in practice. Yes. So the way I look at development, it, as we move into a new phase of higher integrated complexity, where there's more to consider, more to feel for, more to make sense of, um, we can do this organically in a balanced way and find ourselves eventually in a new place. But it usually doesn't happen like that. Oftentimes, we've had some terrible disruptive event in our lives and we are shaken up. We temporarily regress. We retreat into a smaller world. Uh, maybe we hold ourselves up in our, in our house, houses um, and watch movies. Maybe we pick up some addiction along the way. But we start to come out of it and we start to make sense of the new thing we've been exposed to and we jump to a higher level of development. So there's a regression in the service of transcendence. Um, there's a different kind of regression in the service of transcendence. Another one is we attempt a developmental leap. We realize that there's better things that we can, there's a better way. We try to adopt that way and it fails. Um, I, I see this a lot in movements that, that um, think they're going to change things and screw it all up. Um, the, the Arab Spring looked like it was going to um, mm -hmm. be this great developmental leap where the whole Middle East moved into a more democratic way of being. And there was a backlash against it that in many places was absolutely brutal and they actually wound up regressing. So it's like an aborted development. Um, you can develop to a new phase and you're seeing through so much and you can't get stable. It's just wavering. Now, one approach is to just go on more retreats. And when things get shakier because you've gone on more retreats, you still do more retreats and you do more therapy and you keep pushing yourself to go higher and higher until the whole thing collapses in the pattern of runaway development, which is kind of what I think China has recently done with their economic development. Um, so the question is, where are we at? We, we've gotten to this place where we had no stabilization. We need new systems put in place. The thing that we've just gone through, this neoliberal phase, which was very globalized and relatively peaceful outside of the United States and Iraq um, in the world. And there was a lot of space for exploration. Um, that phase has become corroded with inequality, oligarchy, and um, there's a rebellion from it. So mm. Part of the country chose fascism. Another part chose progressivism in the manner of Scandinavian countries, basically in Banding behind Bernie, mm -hmm. like this worked in Scandinavia, worked in Germany, it worked in nor Northern Europe. We can do this. All we need is the numbers and a clear agenda, and we're going to do it. Um, and we get the politics right, and then we can relax into all this other stuff we're exploring because we've got the space in our lives to do it now because our jobs are more secure, our families are more secure, et cetera. That was another approach we took. Unfortunately, our society bifurcated um, in something I'd call split-level development, where a large portion of the group decided to regress, um, a large portion decided to progress forward to grapple with the challenges we faced, and another portion 
that seems to have been just um, uh, that's carrying the day of the Democratic Party has decided to move forward slowly with what we were doing before um, with piecemeal reforms. Or maybe maybe they'll adopt the progressive agenda because they're pushed so hard. Um, that's another approach. Mm. Uh, is it possible to take all three at once? Because that's, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's kind of what we've got. <laughs> it depends on the day. I, I can relate to all of those. Yeah. yeah, I think if you, I think if you've, I think if you're a. a a stable meditator who's been doing it for a while and you've seen through a good portion of your identity and the accidents of your birth and um, the narratives of your society, you have some options. And if things get too tough, you can often retreat into something easier. For instance, for me, when lockdown occurred, the easiest pattern for me to slip into yeah, it's filled with anxiety. I, I saw it coming a little before most people. And so it was more frightening because I didn't see anything being done about it. Um, oh, I had an easy pattern to go back into. It was doing Tai Chi yoga meditation every day. I hadn't done it as much. And I'm sorry, I can do a ton of this. I'm now mm-hmm. home and I'm going to read instead of writing. It's really easy. And it's actually quite productive of a lot of good things. And I imagine other people have other easy identities to go back into um, mm. and it, that are, that are outside of this frightening world. And you retreat back into this stable place. You find your footing in a healthy way, and then you move forward. You go back out into the world and see what good you can offer. Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds like a good description of like health, healthy coping. Yeah. You know, it's like go, going back to something that's known, that's helpful, you know, but then not st- not just staying there, but also re- returning once you've got your, your ballast. Absolutely. Hmm. That's a great suggestion. I like that we've started with the kind of big, you know, global perspective. And now we kind of zoomed into the sort of more personal aspect of, of, of how to work with this stuff. Cause um, that seems to be kind of the hard translation work. Like how do, how do, how do you relate to all the, that's going on in the collective and how does that actually impact the day to day? Uh, living and choice making. Absolutely. I mean, we're living in uh, uh, the worst year since 1941 <laughs> when Hitler was taking over Europe and looks set to take over the world. Um, it's a time filled with anxiety, not knowing. Many people listening will not be sure if they're going to be able to hold on to their homes, their apartments their jobs. They're not sure if they're going to, you know, be living in a democracy in six months or a year or two years. Um, if mm. they hold on to their freedoms, um, if our country will be ripped apart in civil war, we're not sure if we're going to grapple with climate change. Um, because we, have we really faced up to it? Do we have the leaders in place to do so? Um, and we're being, torn apart the the fabric of our society as americans for the americans that are listening and to some extent as um as british people are listening but a lot of other countries um if anybody is in india or anybody's in brazil listening or anybody's in russia um or anybody's in france we're 
we're being torn apart as a world on a mm -hmm. very social level. And that gives us so much anxiety and the stakes are so high. We want to be involved. Social media thrusts us into involvement in a way that didn't really happen before it. it it's a new era. You can't help but be political. We're being drawn into so many movements and many of us want to be involved. And I think we should be involved because there's so much good we can do and so much evil that can occur if we're not involved. If those of us who can hold a little more space aren't involved, um, that we're going to be grappling with anxieties, with stresses, with social tensions that um, are, are highly unusual. And, and we're going to have to be really clear about what we do to get ourselves clear. We're going to have to work really hard um, on ourselves. And we're going to have to be really conscious about how we engage socially and politically. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.